Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Lindsay Marshall and Rory Kinnear. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. It's a great pleasure to have uh, with me as my guests today uh, two of the actors who make this current production of Othello so remarkable and so special and so enthralling. But on the other hand, the prospect of afternoon tea with the Yagos sounded a bit forbidding for me. <laughs> so fortunately, I have their representatives in 2013, Lindsay and Rory, to come and represent them in, in spirit as well as in body. Um, congratulations. I mean, the relationship between the two of you is extremely interesting. I mean, how uh, has it been a kind of voyage of discovery through rehearsal, through conversation, through performance? And how would you describe the, the relationship between Iago and Amelia? Well, I, I didn't know I was going to be a soldier until mm, yes. day one. <laughs> so that changed a lot because obviously we work together. We're um, in a situation where I think the pressure's more um, intense because we're with each other all the time. We're married, we work together, we're away Cyprus together. Um, so that added a level to our relationship. I'll throw over to Rory to add Yeah, some. and also the, I mean, the military side of it, which I'd sort of had a heads up from Nick before, before day one of rehearsals, but Lindsay hadn't. Um, uh, that does... Iago's suspicions of... Uh, Othello's, of Othello cuckolding him with his wife. Um, uh, that sense of loyalty and unbreakable bond that you get in, in army life and the camaraderie that upon which the sort of military code and honour is based and without which you couldn't really do the job. The fact that that's already been splintered in his mind in some ways gives him a green light to, to splinter it with Othello himself. So, uh, I mean, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a bold decision from Nick to, to, to make Amelia part of the military world and to make it part of both the, uh, the professional side of mm. Iago's life as well as his personal mm -hmm. side. And I guess, therefore, making, um, making the relationship that much more tense. So, you know, going out to war was not a relief or an escape from, um, from marital life and um, the, the poison that I guess he, he felt at home with her that it, you know, it was something he carried with him, <laughs> carried with him all the time. Right. Now, who would like some tea? <laughs> I'd like some. Talking of poison. Yeah. There we are. Now, what was your... Because normally, Amelia is played as, I suppose, Desdemona's lady-in-waiting or confidante or something like that. Tea, Roy, are you sticking Please, to... Please, it's like a marriage counselling session. Okay. For the... <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're going to get us back together. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I live in hope. What, I mean, what was your reaction when you heard that she was going to be in the military? I think it's a fantastic um, decision because otherwise it's very difficult, I think, in a modern context to have um, Amelia... I mean, what would Amelia be? She'd be... She couldn't be kind of um, a, a serving lady or a, a maid because that wouldn't quite fit. And I think um, the fact that Nick cast me, and I'm the age that I am. Um, I think, I think it works that she's there um, working within the army because then it also makes Desdemona stand out as being this kind of exotic being, of being this young, flighty mm. woman 
in normal clothes. And I think if Amelia was as well, it would um, it, it wouldn't be as potent, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and also, it's given me so many different layers to play um, within the character, just because just that toughness, I think, has come out of um, just what I'm wearing, how I feel, mm -hmm. just when you get the boots on. And um, I, I think it's really inspired. I think it well, really you're works. Like, like down to it with the lads, I suppose, in your combat fatigues. And oh, yes, like in that. the mess scene, I'm up there <laughs> on the chair. Mm. All of that. Now, would you like some milk? Oh, yes, please, yeah. yes. You're asking the hard questions, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the, uh, the extraordinariness of Othello inviting his wife on ops. Yes. Um, it would be diluted somewhat if also Iago got to bring his wife. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, that sense of the, the blind love that he must be possessed by at the time to completely ignore protocol um, to, to bring Desdemona out and how much, you know, how out of place she is and like a fish out of water. Were also there another lady who was also a fish out of water. Um, it, it feels like that, the potency of that decision would be diluted. Is it, I mean, I, I assume, I may be wrong, oh, is it an abusive relationship, is there, between Iago and Amelia? Has he been violent towards her, do you think, at, at times? Does he intimidate her? There was an interesting moment in um, the last scene last night, actually, um, because you don't see Amelia and Iago in many scenes mm. together. Um, and the last scene is always... I love the last scene because it's different every night. And there was a moment last night when Rory mm. put up his hand as if to hit Amelia. And it felt at that moment, absolutely. That's what happens. That's what I feel has happened and happens in the relationship. Um, and the way that Amelia talks about men and her, in her speech in act two, you get this sense that she's, she's extremely jaded by men and um, she kind of get, you know, has crumbs in the relationship, you know, whatever he can give her. The whole reason she gives him the handkerchief is, you know, she hopes it will be a nicer evening, a nicer it's time. A, it's a propitiatory offering, as it were, yeah. to, to him. I think when um, Amelia gives the handkerchief to Iago, that sounds so modern. It feels mm. like um, it could be today. Um, what I think is great about the scene, the Willow scene, is the few times I've seen Othello, it's very much a bedroom scene with um, Amelia being a more matronly figure, a kind of nurse figure, a mum figure, getting Desdemona ready for bed, brushing her hair, mm. getting her nightgown on, put, basically putting her to bed like yeah. a child. Um, and what is very liberating in the way that we portray the scene is that you have two women on deck chairs with no props, no furniture, and two beers. And I think um, you can really hear the words. Mm. Um, and also the fact that you have Amelia there in her fatigues with a can of beer saying those words. It, I think you hear it differently because you see it differently. Um, 
Well, I'd never noticed that speech before. It was like, I, I, you know, I should have had my text to consult that, but I'd never noticed that there's this sort of pivotal moment before, and yet this production, the decisions you'd taken, sort of liberated it, really. It was most extraordinary. It's the last time that they see each other as, as well, Amelia yes. and um, Desdemona, quite, alive. Quite. <laughs> Has, is it depressing to play Iago, Rory? <laughs> is, he, is he seeping into your, you know, your sort of everyday life? As well, does it? I, I like to. I like to think I'm able to, to leave the job at, at the at the building, um, and I think my family would like that as well. Um, but, uh, I don't know. You're never really quite aware residually how much how much of an effect it, it takes on you. Uh, it is, um, in many ways, it's it's it sort of he exists in in an absence of feeling. So um, until I guess the very very last moment of the play, in which there, I guess that. We try to hint at a moment of self-reflection, but until then, it's more the the character that exists before the play starts that is in a in a funk. Um, and actually, it's his resolve at the beginning of the play to to do something about it, to infect a fellow with the poison that he's been infected mm. with himself. Um, so in in that way, actually, the more you know, and it, it's not like he has some Machiavellian grand scheme at the beginning of the play. He is making decisions moment to moment, yeah. and they tend to come off uh, extraordinarily. Um, and each level he goes up is um, in uncharted territory, and not really. I mean, he doesn't begin the play wanting anyone mm. to die. He just wants, he just wants Brabantio to ruin Othello and Desdemona's marriage. Um, and the more that things ramp up, and the more he sees himself getting an authority and a power, particularly over the, of Othello, uh, someone who, you know, who obviously hasn't considered him able enough militarily mm. to promote, but he sort of becomes his, um, uh, Othello sort of becomes Iago's underling throughout the course of the play. And the, I guess the energy and the, um, uh, and the power that he, that gives Iago is actually quite thrilling for him. Mm. And he must get carried away with that thrill, and otherwise he, there might come that moment where he'd actually think about what was happening. Yes, I think he becomes intoxicated with the, with the power which he seems... He, he, as you say, I don't think he started off with this grand plan. He reacts to the events, but he's such a good, quick thinker, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, he begins to sense the power he has, and he likes it. He has, develops a taste for it. Yeah, as someone who sort of complains that he's been overlooked um, militarily, actually, within his you know, within his personal um, ambition, he's tactically incredibly astute. Mm. <laughs> Whereas Othello, who's been promoted presumably because of his military tactical nous within his personal life, mm. is tactically um, idiotic. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, that that sort of, I mean, I guess it's Iago's fir first half in terms of. In terms of the charting of the play, until that collision at just mm. before the scene, just before the interval, where Othello says, I mean, where Iago says, "All this pain I've been feeling, you have it," and then you see Othello take that on throughout the second half of the play and how they react to that pain differently. So you've, there's no doubt in your mind that Iago genuinely believes he's been cuckolded by Othello. Well, he's he's heard the suspicion, and that's enough for him. That's enough, right? And so, and you feel that that justifies. Something of what happens. I mean, are you. I don't think you can say it justifies. No, but you're looking at it from the world through his uh, viewpoint, his perspective. Yeah, I mean, you, that, I mean, in terms of why he does what he does, you have the first speech of to a Rodrigo saying how you know how ludicrous it is that this 
young guy, Cassio, is being promoted rather than him. But you learn to realise through the course of the play that anything that Iago says to someone who's on stage is usually a lie. Um, so in some ways, those reasons become secondary to the reasons that he gives in the soliloquies. And I, I tend to think people, people very rarely lie in soliloquy in Shakespeare. And, and it's easier to take at face value what they say in soliloquy. So the first thing he starts off in his first soliloquy is about how he hates the more and he, he suspects that twixt his sheets he's done his office. So for me that was you know, the, the thing that was burning in him wanting to say and to get an audience to finally say it and to work out those thoughts. Uh, so I guess that was, that was the key to me. Now, now why he's become the, a person who under that suspicion would do anything to bring down this man and you know I guess you know you you can't say too much about how premeditated it is or how things spiral out of control but he certainly wants to take a fellow down and Cassia um, why he is that person so quick to vengeance or to simmering hatred you have to work that out before the play starts and with many characters in Shakespeare like Hamlet or Angelo extraordinary events happen to the character with whom an audience spends a great deal of time before the play actually starts. Mm. So um, you have to work out who that person was before, before the event, and particularly sort of like the relationship with Amelia and what that might have been originally, uh, and the relationship with Othello and how that's changed and how he's managed to conceal uh, for however, however long you say that mm. you make up in your mind how, how long they, he, the suspicion has been festering. Um, so you think about going to, I guess the only research or did pre preparatory work I did was about soldiery and uh, warfare and knowing that it was in a contemporary setting over the last 10, 15 years and maybe the conflicts that, that he would have gone to, the kind of thing that Othello and Iago had experienced together and the, and the bond that that formed. I was very struck by the scene. I mentioned this to Adrian a couple of weeks ago and he was in your very situation. The scene where you're together in the office, where you begin to drip poison into his ears. The night I was in, the audience were chuckling because they admired Iago's intelligent manipulation so much that they were kind of, I don't think they were colluding with him, but they were certainly so struck by how clever he was, how skilled he was, that they could not help but burst out. Now, that must be difficult for you, the two of you, to ride that, is it? Or are you able to kind of, you know, nip it in the bud? With yeah, there's, certainly, there's certainly been, um, particularly over the first two weeks of previews and, and opening, there was a lot of work done to try and squash as much laughter as possible. And even in the final scene, there was, um, you know, laughs. And you know why, because it's incredibly tense. And, and also, you've got the dilemma of an audience that knows what's going on and no one else on stage does except the one person they've been afforded a confidence with who's the worst person on stage. Um, and, you know, there's a history of audience members coming on and um, well, one in particular in which an audience member jumped up and, and shot the actor playing Iago. You know, there's... Uh, and, and, and in some ways, an audience... I'm not, I'm not advocating people do it, but in some, <laughs> in some ways, an audience not doing that makes them complicit in the tragedy yes. so that... You, um, you know, the, the horrendous manner in which Desdemona is killed, spoilers alert if anyone hasn't seen it, um, 
uh, is, I mean, it takes so long and is, is so brutal, and each time saying, if you laughed during the last three and a half hours, in some ways, this is your fault too. Uh, and so if there is laughter, and uh, at, at times, particularly the speech I, I work hardest at to try and squash it is the one about Cassio's dream, um, and because he goes on and on, and it is, you know, the, the fact that he goes on and on makes it sort of disgusting and ridiculous. Uh, but at the same time, you can never make an audience think that Othello is an, an idiot. Mm, yeah. uh, and me and Adrian were very, very, worked very, very hard at making sure that everything I gave him was as believable yeah. as he needed, and every reaction that he gave to me meant that I could move on to the next stage. Um, so it's quite a fine little dance, that mm. scene, but it's, it's incredibly well written, so you just have to work it work out. Because had you, had you and Adrian worked together before this production? Had, no. Did you know each other? Had you? No, we haven't. I mean, Nick had asked Adrian about it about 10 years ago mm -hmm. and had asked me about it about five years ago. So, right. you know, we, there was an option to meet, but we, uh, <laughs> I guess we, it hadn't been set in stone when it was going to happen. So. Because I think it, I can't think of any other relationship in... Well, well, I'm sure someone will correct me, world drama, when you have two characters of equal weight so intimately involved with each other, in, in, certainly in classical drama. I mean, has it demanded of the two of you, I, I don't know, a greater trust, a, a greater involvement with each other? Uh, I, mean, I mean, yes, in that, um, you know, we... We started talking about it together with Nick about the same time, about six months before rehearsal started, and um, and you know we kept on bumping into each other once we sort of knew about it, um, and then of course once you're into re rehearsal, I mean, it does in the same way. I guess I guess it's difficult to say because it's worked quite well, and and, and we get on very well, and uh, we like acting with each other, so. Um, but I, I guess that's sort of the same with every other job that yes, you do. I mean, you, you, sort have have that have, you sort of have to have that trust and confidence in the people that you're working with. Um, I mean, you do only have also two scenes together, really, mm. um, and they're extraordinary scenes. And one in particular is an absolute masterpiece. Um, and it's you know it's a it's a great pleasure to be able to play it with someone who's giving back to you as much as mm. you'd hoped and who's playing it with such extraordinary delicacy and truth. So and I think that's really, certainly thrilling for the audience to see, you know, two great actors at the absolute, you know, optimum, uh, working with each other in that way. It's really, I think it's really thrilling and, and exciting. Anyway, let's, let's leave Othello behind and the, the Yargos and go back to the beginning. Now, obviously, we know about uh, Rory's antecedents, but, Lindsay, you've got no show business in your uh, immediate family, I imagine. In fact, from what I read, you wanted to be an archaeologist. <laughs> and I wanted to do anything other than acting. <laughs> so were you going to go on time team with, you know, Sir Tony? Was that the plan? What Hopefully was your interest not. in? No, um, I did classics A-level. Mm -hmm. um, I did um, English um, drama and classics and just had the most extraordinary classics teacher mm -hmm. who was incredibly inspiring, really passionate, um, and I loved it. Um, and I was at that stage where I was getting ready to apply for university, and and then I kept thinking, well, maybe I should go to drama school. And I'd done a lot of things, um, like Manchester Youth Theatre, National Youth Theatre, um, plays in Salford, in um, Hume, and 
I remember my mum saying to me once, do you think you'll ever get paid to do this? <laughs> and driving me here and there. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I basically took a year out because I needed to make some money and I needed to work out what I was going to do. And then I thought, okay, I, I, I should just be brave and apply for drama schools. Mm. But it took me a year of kind of to and froing. So, yeah. And you retain your interest in archaeology? I mean, the, the odd, are you interested in crumbling old ruins? And don't look at me when you, <laughs> I, when you answer kind of, that. I've kind of left, <laughs> <laughs> I've left all that behind. I but, see. Um, oh, well. Yeah. Um, but I was really passionate mm. at the time. But I keep thinking I maybe should do like a open university course, but there's never any time. Well, why not? Right. There's no time. So you went, you went to train in Cardiff, and, yeah. but you got a job almost before you finished your course at the Royal Court, I understand. Yeah, um, in my um, last kind of six months of drama school. Mm. It was quite difficult because I was doing a, a degree course, course. because then I, I was the last year that could get a grant. Right. Um, I don't know how anyone does it now. Well, they do it and mm. have a lot of debt. Um, and so it was a difficult decision because it would have meant me not being able to finish the degree. But then I'd been offered um, the, the play mm. at the Royal Court. And so um, my teachers were really fantastic and they marked me on my performance right. at the court, which meant <laughs> I... Past, um, Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> I think the first time I noticed you, and I think you were noticed quite, I seem to remember, by the critics and the sort of the buzz, was when you did Boston Marriage by David Mamet with Zoe Wanamaker and Anna Chancellor. Now, they're pretty, talking of, you know, having good competitors, well, not competitors, colleagues on stage. They are pretty high-powered ladies. So was it a bit daunting to find yourself in a, th a three-hander with them, as I remember? Or were they, you know, did they make it easy and comfortable for you? I, I, I suppose the um, naivety of youth, I was so naive that I didn't really, it didn't kind of phase me at no. all. Apart from one night when, um, before we started, Zoe invited, and me, Zoe and Anna are still very, very good friends. I saw them the other night. Mm -hmm. She invited me, Anna and Philida round for dinner. Mm -hmm. And I was living with three other girls. It was four of us all left drama school. And she'd left the message on the landline. And um, my other flatmate took the message about the dinner, never wrote it down. Oh, and so I w uh, on this day, I was actually doing my tax mm. in my pajamas. <laughs> I was covered in receipts. And I got a phone call about 10 to 8. And it was Zoe saying, where the are you? <laughs> And that was pretty terrifying. <laughs> and I said, I don't know anything about it. She's like, get in a taxi and come round now. And so that was, um, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was quite frightening. But um, it was fantastic working with both of them mm. and working with Philida Lloyd. Um, and also David Mamet, he yes. came and did, um, when we were in previews, and he gave some notes that I still remember now, mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I use now. Mm -hmm. And it's all to do with focus and energy. And there was a scene when Zoe had this massive speech and I was playing a maid and I was sweeping and doing all this stuff. And, and then she has this, you know, fantastic 
last line. And when he came, he, he directed me, he said, you know, do not move a muscle, do not blink, do not do anything, just remain perfectly still, because it's all about focus. And if Zoe's got this huge speech and you just do this or go like that, then you've got maybe 150, 200, 50 or 70 people suddenly go like that to you and it dissipates the last line. Mm. And, um, and there are some actors who know that and do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No names, no pack. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned a lot from mm. that job, and it was an incredible experience. And one of the most challenging things for you to do uh, was play Cleopatra in Rome, the um, box office. Now, because I was just watching a program on, you know, Liz Taylor's and Richard Burton's Cleopatra is must be difficult when you've got all that, all those ladies who played Cleopatra. To for you to forget all that and to kind of investigate the character as if it were a, a, you know, the first time you'd heard of her or yeah, read about her. I, I think it's the same, but then it's the same with Shakespeare. I mean, how many actresses have played Amelia? How many actors have played Iago? I think if you're playing a, a classic part like mm -hmm. that, you've got this whole kind of reign of people who have done it before you. Um, and I think all you can do is treat it like new writing, treat mm. it like it's the first time it's ever been done. Otherwise, there's nowhere to go. She wasn't actually a great beauty. That's what no. was um, quite useful. Um, she, um, she spoke several languages. Mm. She was incredibly intelligent. She was noted as being hugely charming and men would just fall in love with her brain, mm. really. Um, but obviously, there was a lot of... I mean, I, I had a lot of criticism playing that part as well, but the criticism was to do with my looks and people have a certain idea that, mm. you know, Cleopatra is Elizabeth Taylor. Mm. So, you know, wh why? how can that be, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but also, I think there's a huge um, pressure on young women now who are in those kind of series, HBO series, BBC series, mm. of having to look a certain way, having to show a certain amount of flesh. And I'm quite glad that I'm not in that ingenue kind mm. of area anymore. It was also a, a remarkable job for me because it was um, a really huge break. Um, I got to live in Rome, work at Chinichita, mm -hmm. work with really great people yeah, again. Yeah, marvelous cast. Um, and yeah, it was great. Mm, good. Now, another friend of mine, another chap, he was wondering, he couldn't compute the fact that Adrian is playing Othello, but also starred as Mickey in Hustle. And I felt like saying to well, the guy playing Yago is appearing with Count Arthur Strong on Tuesday night. <laughs> But is this part... Do Your friend never been to the theatre before. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he has a very sheltered life, this chap. <laughs> but the point being is that, of course, the actors, you all have to be so versatile now, but that's something you embrace. That's what I said to him. Was I right to think this? Are actors very shy of becoming typecast or associated with a particular part or sorts of parts? I guess so. I mean, um, mm -hmm. the fun thing about being an actor is that there are you know, potentially lots of different things to do. And um, that's in terms of both the parts that you can play and the media that you, that you work, can work in. And they all require different skills, you know, doing tragedy and comedy and working on TV or 
in the film, in films or in the theatre. They all have slightly different skills, but also they're all exactly the same job in that mm -hmm. you, you create a character and try to breathe some incredible life into it. Um, so whilst the job sort of remains the same, the various techniques differ. So you sort of, uh, I mean, I guess I, I really in, enjoyed the idea of becoming an actor because I thought it was too, um, I thought it was too difficult just to be, just to make a decision about who you wanted to be as a person. <laughs> um, and there just seemed to be so many different options you could be. Uh, and so rather than having to make a choice for myself, I thought I could uh, try and live out various other people through my career. Well, yes, I remember reading a quote, you, I, you won't, but the film actor Claude Rains, who uh, appears in a lot of old black and white films you might see. I'd see he, I remember seeing a quote when he talked about the pleasure he'd had in playing people who were smarter, more, better looking, more intelligent, more dynamic than he felt he was. That you know, some actors, uh, I suppose if they, if they sense or they feel they're inadequate in some way, can you know, go into acting and to kind of you know, compensate for... I didn't say inadequate. <laughs> I'm talking in general as well, you know, Rory. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, is that that fun in being? Is there still, you know, do you still get that kind of element of enjoyment and pleasure in putting on another uh, character, both of you? I mean, I, uh, I really, I mean, it's also the, also the thing that you sort of forget about how it, the, the enjoy the enjoyable part of it is how how much creating a character develops and changes throughout the job. Now, if you're, if you're filming something, you want to try and have as great a handle on the character by day one as possible. Mm. Um, obviously, in rehearsals, you've got, if you're working here, six or seven weeks to try and develop it. But you know, when you get to the end of a run, you know, when, when we finish this in October, I always feel like I want to apologise to the people that came to see it at the beginning of a run because you, you've got such a richer and more varied and greater understanding of, of the person. Um, and, you know, it's sort of the same in filming because, because come the end of an eight-week shoot, you know so much more about the person than you did. Unfortunately, you, you've shot it. Um, but uh, I, I think that's, that's the thing I, I really enjoy, that actually the sort of depth of understanding that you can get to with with a character as well as you know that initial stage of making the you know the essentially externally and internally bold decisions about who they are and, and what they um and what their history is but i guess the sort of the subtleties and nuances that evolve throughout um living with them for a, for an extended period of time and that, you know that's why as as much as long runs of plays can be demanding in terms of keeping it the life um, uh, enjoyable for, for, for other actors and yourself. It, at the same time, you're, a, you're able to um, sort of get, yeah, get a deeper understanding. Because you're everywhere at the moment, uh, Rory, because Southcliffe, this is a Channel 4 uh, series. Do you want to introduce that to us? It's on next week, I think, from... Yeah, uh, it's on, on Sunday for, for, the, for, for four nights in, mm -hmm. in a row. Um, and it's... Uh, it's a uh, yeah, four-part TV drama about written by Tony Grassoni, who, who wrote the Red Riding trilogy, among other things, um, and directed by a, an American director called Sean Durkin, who directed this film, indie film called Martha Marcy May Marlene. And it's really about the effects of a tra tragic event in a uh, in a small town. It's a small coastal town in this case, but 
the, the tragedy happens to be a uh, lone gunman going on a on a sort of a mass shooting. Mm. Uh, but it's trying to, I guess, it's slightly more meditative than um, sensationalist. Look at look at an event like that, in that you sort of explore the lives of the characters um, and the perpetrator before it happens and after, and the effects that uh, that something like that, and you know, very many different effects that it can have on a community. How it brings some people together, how it splits some families apart. And, um, it's uh, it's it's. It's really extraordinary, actually. It's, 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 it's fantastic. Now, you've also started to write plays as well. Next month, your first play, The Herd, opens at the Bush Theatre. And you've, you haven't got a bad little cast of unknowns there. Ken Cranham, Amanda Root, Anna Calder Marshall, directed by some beginner act, uh, director, Howard Davis. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about how all this has come around. Have you been writing on the sly for some time, then? Um, I, I sort of... I, I got to grips finally with this, but it's sort of a, a, a theme that I'd wanted to explore um, in a play for a long time and, and never really, well, uh, I guess I had never really given myself enough time to really sit down and to think about how I wanted to tell it. And then uh, I was doing a play here called Burnt by the Sun a long time ago. And uh, we had a two week break and during the, the course of rehearsals and uh, and the performance, sort of my, I guess my brain was ticking over on, on the the other side, on the writing side as well. And it sort of arrived to me what kind of play I wanted it to be and the, and the structure of it. And we had a two week break, and um, and my partner said, you know, stop talking about it, go away and write it. <laughs> uh, so I, I went away for for two weeks to the to the Lake District and and sort of wrote every day for you know 14, 15 hours and uh, wrote a first draft in that in that fortnight. And um, did a reading of it with some friends and made a few uh, changes and then sat on it and worried and didn't really want to do anything about it because it felt quite exposing. Um, but I knew the one person that I wanted really to see it and to read it because I know he doesn't pull his punches when it comes to criticism at all. And I've got f a couple of friends who are, who are writers who bear the scars of his, <laughs> uh, of his script reports. Yeah. So uh, I knew Howard would be... Um, would let me know if I was onto a wrong thing, uh, and he wouldn't try and soft soap his reaction. And uh, and he was sort of surprisingly encouraging and positive about it. So I went away and, and did another draft, and then well, I had our son, and sort of things just sort of got on the back burner, and mm -hmm. I forgot about it for a while. And I was pleased to have forgotten about it because it meant I didn't have to show it to anyone again. Uh, but Howard kept on kept on kept on at me and asking me what I was doing with it, and so. Eventually, I got the courage to send it out to some people, and um, and the Bush said that they, they'd like to do it. And I still hadn't asked Howard if he wanted to direct it, and I was very, very nervous. And I sort of, he hadn't said that he did, and I hadn't really asked him. So it was sort of, <laughs> we were dancing around each other whether or not this was actually going to happen. Then it, the slot came through at the Bush, so I, I thought I'd be brave and call up Howard, um, expecting just his usual gruff, curt, one word uh, answer. Mm. But I didn't know if that was going to be no or yes. Um, and um, and it was his voicemail, so I had to leave a burbly message to him. Um, and yeah, he, he texted me back about 20 minutes later saying, love to do it. Um, and that was definitely the single most satisfying professional experience of my yes. life. <laughs> I knew for the next eight months I didn't have to worry because uh, having been directed by him mm. three times, you know, in terms of socio-realistic drama, he's sort of uh, be, be, beyond... Uh, incredible, uh, and 
I knew he would make it better than it, it probably was. Well, I must ask you the next question, though you may not like when I ask you this question, but is, are you likely to be the new occupant of the TARDIS, Rory? Now, this is your <laughs> chance to squash the rumour once and for all. Yeah. No, I, I, can, I can reveal I am going to be... No, I'm not going to <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 don't know where it came from. Don't know why, why I got involved. <laughs> I got caught up in the maelstrom, but, uh, yeah, flattering but false. I but guess. you said that you were quoted as saying you'd never watch an episode of Doctor Who before, oh. which I found improbable. Is this true? Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm afraid it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. What about a sort of... Oh, dear, it's about time we had a, a female... Uh, <laughs> Doctor Who, Lindsay, are you interested? In no, no. Start the rumour now, everybody. Now. <laughs> <laughs> no. now, tell me, one of the most exciting experiences you've had must have been working with Clint Eastwood a few years ago. Now, tell us about that. What are your memories of that? Yeah, it was, um, it was amazing. Um, he doesn't um, ever audition people. Mm -hmm. You put yourself on tape. Um, and so it was a very strange um, setup in that when I went to film, I was quite disappointed where I, where I was filming because it was set in Paris, in Thailand, in Detroit, and I filmed in Elephant and Castle. Um, <laughs> this is a film called Hereafter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> on a really rough council estate. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Oh, I was incredibly nervous because you got to set and then um, I went where we were filming and was waiting and waiting and waiting and every time the door opened I thought, oh my God, this is going to be him, this is going to be him. <laughs> and then an hour passed, two hours passed and then um, everybody was nervous because they'd filmed in... Um, America, but it was their first day filming mm -hmm. here, and so I hadn't taken that on board. So everyone was a little bit didn't you know yeah. hadn't found their feet. Um, and then um, this very strange thing happened where the first went okay, so um, come through the door and we're turning, and it was a first. <laughs> a moment then when I suddenly stopped being a bit kind of to. Actually, I'm here to do a job and I need to meet the director. And I said, I haven't met the director yet. I don't know what's going on. And everyone was mortified mm -hmm. and no one knew what was happening. And they went, oh, my God, okay, go upstairs. And then I went upstairs and he was just sat there. And it was just so weird because it was like walking into a room and like Marilyn Monroe mm. sitting there or Elvis sitting there. It was like Clint Eastwood sitting there. And um, I worked out he was just incredibly shy. He was very, very, very shy. And he was incredibly polite, couldn't have been nicer. Um, and what was incredible about being directed by him is he would, you'd only maybe do one or two takes and he'd be behind the camera. And, and I have one scene that's quite an emotional scene where I'm um, basically, um, saying that I can't look after my son and he's going to go to foster mm. parents and so it's all very emotional and he's, Clint Eastwood is behind the camera and he's kind of watching on this tiny monitor but he, you know, completely goes there with you so he's crying and crying and you're kind of crying going, Clint Eastwood's crying and <laughs> it's quite odd and, and I said to him, I said, you know, why don't you ever audition people why mm. don't you meet people 
And he said, well, I'm an actor and, you know, I, I know what it's like. And I just would feel that everyone who came in, I'd want to give everyone the part. <laughs> so, yeah, he was really nice. And he also used to do this thing where mm. he, he'd never say action. He'd mm. always say, and go, or when you're ready, mm. or nothing. And suddenly you were filming. And I said, why don't you ever say action? And he said, well, when I was doing all the westerns, mm. and the director would shout action, as actors, you instantly get tense. And so your thighs go a bit tight, and then the horses buckle. <laughs> and so we worked out that let's not have action on the <laughs> Well, I'd never thought of that before. Yeah. <laughs> so the horse would sort of, you know, tighten up as well, or yeah. rear or something. Yeah. Well, goodness me. And were you able, was he able to kind of tell you what he wanted or tell you that you'd given him what he wanted? Because some film directors tend to be quite, you know, taciturn, don't they, about what they want or telling you how it's gone. I think he just trusts with the casting that he's got it right and he he leaves you to it. Um, I think the big challenge in that role, uh, in that film, was that I had two twin boys and neither of them had ever acted before. before. And so it was about um, trying to get the right performance mm -hmm from them so that was quite a learning experience right. as well oh. and there was a time when um Spielberg produced it and all the big wigs came yeah. down one day and Clint <laughs> Clint my old chum <laughs> took me aside <laughs> and said you know I really need to get this reaction mm -hmm. from the you, you know the little boy and I'm just going to let you improvise and so I knew they were all there in the little filming village and and it went on for about a good 20 minutes. Mm. And I thought, is anyone going to stop this? Is anyone going to say cut? Um, but it was, it was extraordinary working with this young boy and seeing you know, how he reacted. And at one point, I slammed my hand on the table and he really jumped. And I was like, oh, no! <laughs> you know? um, but, and also, it, it's that thing that Rory was saying that when you're filming, because I've done mostly theatre, you know, you have six, seven weeks or you have four weeks where you have all this time to develop a character and to go home and to obsess about it, to wake up thinking about it, to dream about it, to have your tube journey home thinking about it. And um, the, there's certain different pressures when you're mm -hmm. filming in that there is no time for rehearsal. There's n no time, really, and so you've got to take everything there and so when they go and we're turning action mm -hmm. that it's got it's, to be there. it's all there mm -hmm. yeah so did spielberg and the other big wigs did they go away happy then with this sequence as far as you think aware? so i think so well, congratulations it, now it's been absolutely fascinating our listening to the insights that you've given us on what i think is going to be a landmark production that's going to be remembered as you know, as the years go by. So, ladies and gentlemen, join us, join me in thanking Lindsay Marshall and Rory Kinnear. <laughs> <laughs>